Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. Thank you, everybody. Uh, you can be seated. So good to be here with you in Harvey Bay. Come on. It's hard to believe it's been a year. It's so good to be back with my good friends. And, um, and just you guys really inspire me here. Your leaders inspire me. I, I, um, being around... Uh, being around uh, Ross today, I, um, I, yeah, I'm always inspired um, by something he does or says, and, and that's, that's, that's not always the truth, and so you guys have one of the great pastors of the world here, right here in Harvey Bay, and yeah, you do. Um, a- afterwards, I do have my resource table set up, CDs, DVDs, USBs, and direct downloads. Um, if you're wondering why we carry that around, it's because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So for well over a decade, we've given 100% of the profit of that away to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. But we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats, right? So that's... So that's what that goes for. Um, if, if, you, um, if you come out, um, come back there after the service, you got the listening stuff on the left side, the watching stuff on the right side, and uh, no matter what you get, you get a USB with it as well, so you can get it in all the formats, and uh, it just helps us. Essentially, um, I'll hand you something that'll change the way you look at God. You hand me something that helps me feed, clothe, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids. It's pretty good, uh, pretty good deal. All right, so uh, if you're talking about following actual Bible, Ezekiel 18, um, I want to talk to you tonight about honor. I want to talk to you about fathers and mothers and generational things and, and, and what it, does it mean to go forward and how best to empower your life. Now, this passage is 3,500 years old. Now, when you're reading something that's 3,500 years old, you have to consider the fact that the words back then meant something slightly different than how we would read it today. So before I read this, I want to point out a common metaphor. These were metaphors. These weren't meant to be taken literally. The, the, a common metaphor that ancient prophets used. Death, die, darkness. Now, when an ancient prophet said death, die, darkness. He wasn't talking about literal death, nor was he talking about going to hell when you died. That idea didn't come around till later, right? This was something that they used as a metaphor about entering into God, uh, something that that is not God's way to live, something that puts your life into disrepair. In, In scripture, it's presented as a choice, Life, death, choose life that you might live. Obviously not literal life, right? No one chooses when they're born. No one chooses when they die. But he says, if you, if you have the opportunity to live in God's best or to live outside of God's best, choose life that you might live. Another synonymous term was light or dark. So, so if an ancient prophet said that's darkness, he didn't mean go to hell when you die, nor did he mean you're literally in the dark. It meant you were choosing to live in such a way that brings your life to disrepair instead of wholeness. And light, life was towards wholeness, abundance, and peace. So choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Life and death, choose life that you might live. In scripture, these things are presented as choices. So you don't want to read it in 2019 and extrapolate heaven or hell after life into it. This has to do with how we're living now. How do we live right 
now. Nor do you want to read it literally. Like if I make a mistake, I'll die, right? Obviously, that's not the case as well. He's using this as an ancient metaphor like prophets did. Now, with that in mind, there's this guy named Ezekiel. He's writing an encouragement to a group of Jews who are enslaved under the authority of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And he's trying to encourage them a little bit by knocking them around a bit. Because sometimes the best way to change someone's perspective is to knock them upside the head a little bit. Kindly, but a little bit. And this is what he says. This is Ezekiel 18, verse 1, 2, and 3. We're going to stay in Ezekiel 18 all night, so it'll be easy. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you people mean? If this was Australian, what are you on about, bro? What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The father ate sour grapes, and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. The mothers ate sour grapes, and now it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. I don't want to ever hear that out of your mouth ever again. Now, a couple of questions. One, what does this proverb mean? And two, why is God so apparently ticked off about it? Now, to understand this, we have to understand a brief history of Israel. So, here is the entire history of Israel in 90 seconds. You're going to have to pay very close attention. Ready? There was a guy named Abraham who had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 children and 11 of those 12 children sold one of their brothers into slavery and they later needed him to save their life out of a famine. And so this guy gives them a piece of land in Egypt and this family starts having babies. And these babies had babies and babies and babies and there was more babies and then there was more babies and babies and babies and babies and babies and more babies and babies upon babies upon babies upon babies and more babies and more babies and more babies until this family overpopulated Egypt which panicked the Egyptian pharaoh. He did all he knew he could do and so what he did was is he ended up putting these people into slavery. 400 30 years later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses, and he moves these people out of slavery into freedom by walking them through the Red Sea and God giving them a piece of land. And God says, now that you have your own piece of land, I want you to show the whole world what it would look like if I was in charge of a country. And remember, I'm a slave liberator. This, in short, turned out terribly. By their third king, a guy named Solomon, this is what it says in the books of Kings. It says that this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to the Lord. So, if you're paying attention, a guy that comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forced slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony in that. This doesn't go very well. And they end up back in slavery in a place called Babylon. And who do they blame for their slavery? They blame Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of history books for over 200 years, simply referring to him as David's son. That's how you get people to forget someone's name, is you don't refer to them by their name. This is why if you've ever been through a divorce, you don't refer to your ex by their name. You refer to them as my ex or the children's dad. That's how you get people to forget about it. Now, they said, well, because David's son failed, we are where we are. David's son is why we are the way we are. David's son is why we are where we are. That's why the prophets to Babylon said things like this. Take heart, for God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. Lots of people called him things. Jesus Christ, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our King, Jesus our Lord, Jesus son of Joseph. But the poor and the afflicted had one word for him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy 
mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David that the prophets of old spoke about? Because if that's you, that means you're here for the poor and the afflicted. And newsflash, I'm poor, which means you're here for me. (laughs) Now, I thought that was pretty good. Now, if you got lost in all of that, come back now. Here's what's happening in this passage. The current generation is blaming the previous generation for why they are the way they are. Because that's not relevant at all. We've never heard that. Listen, I'm 43. I've been in full-time ministry since 1995. I have been traveling this world for 16 years full-time. November 1st will be the end of the 16th year and the start of the 17th year. Your pastor has been in ministry longer than me. Your pastor has forgotten more about what he's done for God than I'll probably ever do, okay? But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. There are things about pastoring we enjoy. There are things we don't so much enjoy. Let me let you in on what we don't enjoy. Main thing we don't enjoy is boring, pedantic theology discussions about one particular verse that you can't possibly apply to life today. We find that boring, okay? Let me just set you free from ever asking us about it. We find it boring. That's first. The other thing we don't particularly enjoy doing, but we have to do it, it's necessary time, is confronting people's horrendous behavior, okay? So occasionally you have to confront someone's horrendous behavior. And it's not our favorite thing to do, but because we love people, sometimes we have to do that. And the number of times we get told this, we'll say, sir, cut it out seriously, you got to cut this out. You can't, you can't carry on like this. You're fixing to lose everything that's important to you, bro. Seriously, you need to cut it out. And the guy says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my father was like, you would know why I am the way I am, right? Or we're like, ma'am, seriously, cut it out. You're critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and frankly, horrible. We don't want to be the one to tell you this, but your husband is praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. You have to cut it out. And she says, I know, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would know why I am the way I am. My dad was a drunk, abusive, horrible person, so I'm a drunk, abusive, horrible person. My mom was critical, cantankerous, possessive, jealous, and horrible, so I'll be critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and horrible. My parents were bad with money, that's why I'm bad with money. My parents were lazy. That's why I'm lazy. My parents didn't have good relational skills. That's why I don't have good relational skills. My parents ate sour grapes, and that's why I am the way I am. Here's the problem with that. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. If you sit with me for an hour, answer my questions honestly, I can tell you why you are the way you are. Anyone can see it. It's not hard. It's the easiest part of psychology. Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are, okay? That's not hard, all right? The issue, he's, he's blind. There's some people, there's some young people going, who, what, Ray Charles, who is that? Right, 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 right. He's a blind guy. Listen. Here's the problem. You're 40. And at what point are you going to draw a line in the sand that says just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to perpetuate his dysfunction into perpetuity? 
My mom, yes, my mom ate sour grapes. Yes, she did. But that doesn't mean I have to perpetuate her dysfunction to the next generation. At some point, some brave soul has to draw a line in the sand and says, just because my dad ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to continue on doing it. Just because my mom ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to continue on doing it. Say, Shane, you understand, man, you understand. My parents had issues. Really? Let me ask you a question. Did your, were your parents a man and a woman trying to live together? <laughs> then there's going to be issues. Why? Because marriage is hard. It's ridiculously complex. For the first time in the history of the world, it's happened the last 84. At least in Jesus' day, they died at 32. <laughs> so till death do us part was a bit more doable. The Bible's so complicated. Listen, marriage is so complicated, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Is the Bible for or against marriage? Well, it depends on who you read. Solomon was very for it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Rock. Paul says he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. What's the Bible say about marriage? Depends. Solomon was like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. Paul's like, make it your last choice. Why? Because marriage is difficult. Listen, even if you marry someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, marriage is still difficult. Now, if you marry a sociopath, what would you like me to do? Because even if it's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, marriage is still complex and difficult simply because of the difference of preference, right? Men and women prefer different things, even on the basest, most elemental levels, like smells. Women prefer sweet-smelling stuff, flowers, perfume, candles. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers. I, I hand any woman in this room a bouquet of flowers. Every single woman is going to do the same thing. They're going to sniff it. Yeah. Now, you hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. He's like, that's what that costs, 70 dollars. Yeah. Right? You go to a big enough mall, there will be a candle shop. Think about that. A store making entirely all of its profit on wax. And this is what will happen, right? right? You go to a big enough mall, there's a candle shop. And any time of the day, there will be two women in the candle shop sniffing wax for an hour calling that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. You'll never, ever, ever. You'll never see two men in there. Hey, Billy, check that out. That's that new white lilac scent. Man, that is something special. No way. No way. Why? Because men prefer stinky things. There's nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. We find that hilarious. Women find that disgusting. But it's actually in our DNA to enjoy it. We love it. Look, look, if you're, this is uh, North Queensland. If we, this is a rugby league sort of place, right? If, you, if you're playing rugby league, right? And, and obviously not big time rugby league because none of us are that good. I'm talking about, you know, like, like, like in the park yard rugby league, you know, filled with a bunch of 40-year-old men who could have made it back in the day, but they hurt their knee. <laughs> Those people, right? Right? And it's bloody and sweaty and nasty and horrible, right? And you finish the rugby league match. But you remember, you got to go to work, right? So you get, you get done quickly. You shower up. You put on your work clothes. And you take your bloody, sweaty, nasty clothes. And you put it in a plastic bag. You tie it up and you throw it in the boot of your car. 
Three months later, you're looking for something in the boot of your car. And you know there's something stinky in there. You know it is. Now, every man knows what must happen. You mu- it must. It's in our code. It's in our DNA. If there's a bag with known stinky stuff in it, we have to, 100% of us, we always have to open that bag, and we have to sniff it. We have to. It's like, oh, oh, that's a good one. Oh, and here's the thing, right? This is true of all men. Listen, you, you wives, even if you train your husband to put his dirty clothes in the dirty clothes bin or hamper or whatever you call it, right? right? You, 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 t- you train him to take his clothes off and put them in the dirty clothes. If you're... If he, do, if he doesn't know you're watching, right? If he does know you're watching, he probably won't do it. But if he, if, if he thinks he's by himself, they, all men will do this. They'll take their clothes off, and just before, they'll take, the last thing they take off is their socks. And just before they drop their socks in, I swear, every man has done this, they'll, take, they'll give it a quick whiff. They'll go, whoo, right? It's like we prove we work, right? And here's the thing, right? I promise you this. If those socks don't smell bad enough, They'll be like, I think I can get another wear out of these. I can tell you this right now. If you have a bag with known stinky stuff in it, that man's going to smell it. And here's the thing. If there's three of my friends standing around, it's in the code of the man. Men will pass around a bag with known stinky stuff just to do courtesy sniffs of the stinky thing. And it'll go around. It gets worse. Oh, Jim. Oh, Oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a good one. But here's the thing. If my friends give me a courtesy sniff of my stinky thing, then I owe them a courtesy sniff of their stinky thing. This is why, this is why if you're ever on your way to work and there's four guys in the same truck and they're stuck at a red light and three of them have their head out the window and the fourth one's in the back seat laughing, he just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. That's how that works, right? And these people are supposed to live together? Of course your parents had issues. You say, you don't stand, Shane. You don't stand, man. My dad had issues. Really? Your dad? Your dad had issues? Listen, everybody's dad has issues. Everybody's. Everybody's. My dad is a great man. He's not a good man. He's a great man. It is 5.50 in the morning where he lives. And I can tell you from 4.30 to 5.30, he was praying for this meeting. And he didn't write me to tell me. I just know that's what he's done. Because that's what he's done my whole life. My dad is up every day at 4.30 praying for me. He's always been like one of these early bird people, right? He's got to go to bed early, but, but, but he's always gotten up really early. Like when I was a kid, it was like 5.30. When I went to high school, it was like 5. I went to college, it was 4.30. Then I got done, it was like 4.15 to start praying at 4.30, right? I was talking to him the other day. I was like, Dad, what's up? He said, you know what I'm thinking about doing? I'm thinking about getting up earlier. Getting up, getting up at 4, start at 4.15. I'm like, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. <laughs> this is ridiculous. My dad is a good man. But my dad had issues. Like he liked to scare us. And I don't mean like a mild boo. I mean at six years old, he thought a good idea was to hide under my bed. Now, I'm six. I think the boogeyman's underneath there anyway. And what my dad did was hid underneath my bed. When my mom come and woke me up, she didn't know he was underneath there. She wouldn't have allowed it. My mom comes and wakes me up. I get up out of the bed and unaware, he reaches out and grabs my feet. Your dad had issues. He also liked to embarrass us. He thought it was hilarious. Like one time he was, he was dropping me off for junior high Bible camp. This is something we do in America, in the South in particular. We have Bible camps, really healthy. Now, what we did, picture this. 
107 13-year-olds going to camp together. What could go wrong? Dad <laughs> is driving me up to the church. All my friends are there. And this is what my dad says. He says, hey, buddy, I love you very much. I hope, I hope you have a great time at camp. I'm going to pray every day that God touches your life at camp. I said, thank you, Dad. I love you too. See you later. He said, hang on, hang on. Where's my kiss? I was like, Dad, honest to God, my friends, seriously, can we not do this now? Okay, I understand. So I get out the car, and I hand my bag to the bus driver. And picture this, 57-passenger American school bus, okay? 57-passenger American school bus with a PA, right? I get on the bus, go to the second to last row, ready to go to camp. We're fixing to leave. And to my horror, I look up, and my father had decided to get on the bus. It was 43 degrees outside, right? He had his shorts on, pulled up to here, right? Pulled his socks up to here, and he got onto the bus with a limp. And he grabbed the microphone to the bus, and he said, Excuse me, everybody. This bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayney comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus starts chanting, Kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues. <laughs> of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. The question isn't, do our parents have issues? The question is, is are we doomed to perpetuate those issues into the next generation? Or are we free to draw a line in the sand and choose life, light, and increase instead of death, darkness, and decrease? Now, God says, I don't want to ever hear you blame. Here's what's going on. It is never empowering to you to blame why you are the way you are on somebody else. It's never. It's never empowering to you to do that. It's always empowering to own it, to take responsibility. Listen, it is not your parents' fault for why you are the way you are, unless you're eight. If you're eight, it's their fault, okay? If you're 38, it's you. And it's time for us to own it, to take responsibility, and to move Forward. Now watch what Ezekiel says in the next verse. This is revolutionary stuff. It got him killed. Watch this. Next slide. For everyone, everyone belongs to me. In other words, any discussion about who God is for and who God's not for, that's ridiculous. Are, are they in God's world? Yes. Are they held together by God's name? Yes. Is God's breath moving between them? Yes. Are they a part of all of creation? Yes. The, the idea is that God... See. In Ezekiel's day, now we would never think this today, ever. This is what we're way past this. But in Ezekiel's day, here's what they believed. They believed God was for certain people and was against other people. And so if someone's life was going well, God was for them. And if someone's life was being destroyed, it was obviously God being against them. Now we would never think that now. But that's what they thought back then. Now watch what he says. Every living soul belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both, along, both alike belong to me. But the one who sins is the one who will die. Now, here's what they believed back then that we would never believe now. They believe two things that no longer exist in our belief system. One is that God is for certain people and not for others. We, that doesn't exist for us anymore. The second thing that they believed was this. They believed it was possible for a person's life to be being destroyed by God because of the sins of his great-grandfather. 
right? So they believed that if someone's life was being destroyed, it's because God was still ticked off because of something somebody who's been dead for 60 years had done, right? Now, once again, we, we listen to that now and go, what? I'm just telling you, I get it, but that's what they thought back then. And frankly, that thought is primitively still in some people in us today. Like, like, oh, maybe it's I am the way I am because of some generational thing. Wait a minute, hang on, hang on. Ezekiel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. God first, God is for everybody. That's first. Second, it's the one who's choosing death, darkness, and decrease that is getting death, darkness, and decrease. Now, here's what he does, right? He goes through a long example. And I'm not going to read the whole example. I will read the conclusion. But here's what he says. You can read it later. Trust me, I'll do it well. He says, suppose there's a grandfather who gives birth to a wicked son. So suppose there's a righteous man, and he gives birth to a wicked son. But then that wicked son gives birth to a grandson who turns out to be righteous. So if you're following me here, here's what he says. Righteous grandfather, wicked son, righteous grandson. And then he poses a question. Who inherits what from who? Does the wickedness pass down before the righteousness? Or does the righteousness pass down and circumvent the wickedness? Which one? The the righteous grandson, does he get the wickedness of the father? Or does he get the righteousness of the grandfather? Which one? And the answer he comes to is neither. Actually, what he says is that every generation stands on their own two feet before God, and the generation that chooses to live in darkness will get death, and the generation that chooses to live in light will get life, and that's how he concludes it. Now, in their day, this would have been called the good news, that they're not doomed because of the sins of someone who's dead, right? Now, here's the conclusion of it. This is verse 17. Watch what he says. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. That's talking about the righteous grandson. He will not die for his father's sin. He will live. Now, this was a revolutionary thought, that the son is not sharing the guilt of the father. This was the first time that had ever been said. Ezekiel is giving a new thought. It's quite revolutionary. It was a good thing. Now, watch what he says. But his father will die for his own sin. Because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst his people. In other words, the father's living in death, he'll die for that. The, 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 the son is living in life, he'll live in that. That, that. This was like revolutionary stuff. Now watch what happens. Keep going. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Now why would people ask that? Because that's what they were taught their whole life. They were taught that the son shares the guilt of the father. They had verses for this, right? And when you present something that is opposite of what people have been taught their whole life, they will push back even if it makes more sense and it's nicer, right? They kill Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, instead of killing animals for forgiveness, let's just do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time, right? Of course, they responded by killing him, which ironically provided the sacrifice. But nonetheless, this, this is a normal sort of response. Now, watch what happens. Since the son has done what is just and right and been careful to keep my decrees, he will live. Watch this. Keep going. The one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent. Can I get an amen? Nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Maybe a bigger amen. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Like, what's unfair about that, right? Now watch this. 
But if a wicked person turns away from the sins they've committed and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will live and not die. In other words, no, more, no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision away from turning around and heading towards life, light, and increase. It doesn't matter if that thing is 18 generations deep. If you're heading down the road of death, darkness, decrease, disrepair, your one choice is to turn around and head back into life, light, and increase. And you're never too far down that road to start that process of turning around. Let me say it another way. Your, your family is never so far gone that there can't be one person that turns it around and changes the family tree for every generation after that, right? This is like revolutionary stuff that's 3,500 years old. Watch this. None of the offenses they've committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they've done. They will live. Now keep going. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? I love that. In other words, see, in their day, they actually had a belief system that God enjoyed it when someone ruined their life, right? That God was like, oh, oh, you, you made a mistake. I can't wait to punish you for that because we've never heard anything like that. That's not a part of our world at all. That we would never profiteer on people's spiritual guilt. That's not in our thing, right? But in their world, that was a thing. I hope you're picking up my sarcasm. So, <laughs> so, they, so God says, I, I don't take pleasure when, when, when a wicked person destroys themselves and gets death. I, I, don't, I don't like it. I'm actually very pleased when they turn around. In other words, the, the, the picture Ezekiel says is that if someone's on the road to destroying their life, God doesn't call the angels over and say, hey, watch this. Hey, check this out. Hey, this guy's fixing to, that road goes off this cliff and he doesn't even know it. This is going to be great. No, 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 no. If you're on a road that goes off a cliff, what the picture Ezekiel gives is that God is going, okay, exit now. Get off at the next exit. Turn around. Turn around. Warning, warning. Go, turn around. I want you to live and not die. I want you to live and not die. I want you to live and not die. Watch, watch this. Keep going. Verse 24. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness... And commits sin and does the same detestable things a wicked person does. Will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. Now remember, this is not talking about heaven or hell. This is not talking about literally life or literally death. This is talking about the realm of death, the realm of life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision from turning around and heading back into life, light, and increase. So your decision if you're on the road to death is to turn around. Your decision if you're heading towards life is to keep going. Here's his insight. I, th I find this incredibly wise. Essentially, he says, good decisions do not work like bank accounts. You don't get, tw if you make 20 years of great decisions, you don't then get 20 years of horrendous decisions before you get back to even. That, that actually decisions don't work that way. And neither does repentance. That, and that's a good thing. In other words, look, the happiest, healthiest marriage in this room, whoever that is, you're one really bad decision away from it going wobbly. Okay? Whoever has the best business in the room, you're one poorly thought out decision away from it going wobbly. In other words, you can't bank on yesterday's righteous actions to keep going into the future. Your day starts today and you keep going every day, making great decisions that lead to life, right? <clears throat> so let me summarize it the best I can. If you're on the road to death, turn around. If you're on the road to life, keep going. Now watch what he says. Keep going. Uh, yeah, next verse, 25. 
Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. See, people are pushing back. They're like, wait a minute. We were taught something different our whole life. We were taught that a great-grandson could still be paying for the sins of his great-grandfather. Hold on. This does it. The, the, the way of the Lord is not just. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O Israel, is it my way that is unjust? Is it not your way? Here was the Israelites' way. A great-grandson, life could be destroyed because of the sins of a dead person. Does that sound fair? And watch, watch what Ezekiel says. Watch this. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they'll die. Because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they've committed and does what is just and right, they'll save their life. What's not fair about that? If you're on the road to death, turn around. If you don't turn around, you're going to enter into death and darkness, right? If you turn around, you'll get life and light. How's that unfair? And it has nothing to do with your dad or granddad or great-granddad. You get to stand on your own two feet. You don't have to carry the guilt of their stuff. Not one more second. This is like genius stuff. They keep, keep going. Because they consider their offenses, they've committed and turn away from them. That person will live and not die. Verse 29. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Really? Are you going to call that unfair? Considering what you've been living under for, the, for, for hundreds of years? Are you kidding me? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge you, each according to your own ways. Now, that, is, that would have been revolutionarily kind. You're going to judge me based on my own actions, not the actions of my father? Who can control the actions of your father, right? Declares the Lord. Repent. That just means turn around. Turn away. There it is. From all the offenses and sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and new spirit. I'm going to read that twice because it's the most important. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn around. And live. Now, if you're thinking, Shane, it's Tuesday, it's 2019 Harvey Bay. We get up early around here. Please land this plane. What does this mean for us? Okay, a couple things. One, all of us were formed by our history and our heritage. Okay? And let me set you free from this. This should be obvious, but maybe you need to hear it. It's not your fault. Okay? Nor is, it, nor is it to your credit if you had great parents. Listen, if you grew up with great parents, you should send them a text or an email tonight thanking them for that because you got a head start, okay? You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't introduce them. You didn't give them amorous feelings for each other, okay? If you had great parents, you don't deserve it. If you had horrendous parents, you don't deserve that either. All of us are formed by history and heritage. As a matter of fact, whatever you think is normal, is seared into your brain by the age of eight, okay? So by the age of eight, if purity is normal, you think purity is normal. If promiscuity is normal, you think promiscuity is normal. If quiet introspection is normal, that's what you think. If yelling and abuse to get your way, that's what you think. If, if talking things through peacefully, if, if that's what your family did, that's what you think is normal. If, if actually manipulating to get your way, if that's, it, look, what you think is normal is not your fault. This is why after the age of eight, People like you, you think, oh, they're normal. People not like you, you think they're weird. But the thing is, they think you're weird, right? Because they learned a different normal than you. And sometimes common sense is helpful. We bathe every day. Helpful. We wash our dishes. Helpful. We calmly talk through conflict. Helpful. Sometimes common sense is damaging. We get drunk on the weekend. Helpful. 
Not helpful. <laughs> we, we destroy ourselves by partying to oblivion every weekend. Might be normal, but it's not helpful, right? We're, our ideas around normal are burned in our brain by the age of eight, and that is not your fault. If you have a, a light and life idea of normal, you didn't deserve it. If you have a death and darkness idea of normal, you didn't deserve that either. But the responsibility of us in wisdom is to repent. It is to take an audit of what our family of origin taught us as normal and choose to perpetuate light and life and choose to eradicate death and darkness, okay? And everybody's family will have that. My dad's prayer discipline needs to go on. My dad's generosity needs to go on. My dad's work ethic needs to go on. My dad's affection for scaring six-year-olds needs to die with him, okay? And everybody will have a different sort of things like that. And this is why this is so important. Because if you don't do it, your children will have to. Why leave it to them when you could change your family tree tonight by choosing light and life? If you're on the road to death and darkness, turn around. If you're on the road to light and life, recommit yourself and keep going. Because here's the thing, right? In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not at least one of you thinking this, so let me address it. Shane, good sermon, mildly entertaining, pretty funny, but seriously, I hate sermons like this. As a matter of fact, I hate Mother's Day, I hate Father's Day, I avoid church on those days because I'm going to come to church and someone who does not know me is going to stand on a stage and use the Bible to tell me I need to honor my father and mother. And here's the thing about that. I call bullcrap because here's the thing. You just stood on a stage and told the worst stories about your father you could think of, and they were funny. But if I told everybody what my dad did, it would not be funny. It would be nauseating and likely wouldn't be allowed because it would be too much. If I told you what my mom did, you would not laugh. You would find it nauseating. It would, it would probably be too much. Yet you're going to stand on a stage and use the Bible to tell me I need to honor my father and mother? No. Oh, what do you say to me? Okay. <laughs> if you give me a few minutes, I think I can help you with that very serious topic. First, I am so sorry for whatever happened. A six-year-old should not have to have dealt with the emotions that you had to deal with. It's not in a six-year-old's brain to have to deal with that. But you had to. And I'm so sorry, and it was not your fault, and it should have never happened. That's first. Second, you don't honor someone because they're honorable. You honor someone because you're honorable. That's second. Third, the issue is not honor. The issue is our imagination of what we think honor is. In Hebrew culture, honor has nothing to do with what we say to someone and everything to do with how we behave away from someone. Now, you know that to be true. If you parent a teenager and that teenage girl says, Dad, I honor you. Well, that would bless your heart. But what's more honoring 
is knowing that when she's out with her friends at 1130 at night, she's acting in a way that honors your family values out there instead of what she says to you to your face, right? Same with pastoring. If you say to your pastor, pastor, I honor you, that would bless their heart. It would. And you should tell them that. Seriously. But what's more honoring than saying, hey, guys, I honor you, is them knowing when they're not around, you're behaving in such a way that honors the values of Bayside when you're not around. And when they're not around, then what you say to their face. Honor has infinitely more to how you behave away from someone than what you say to them. So when I say honor your father, I don't mean pretending it didn't happen, nor do I mean acting like it wasn't wrong. I simply mean the best way to honor your father is to choose to perpetuate light and life to the next generation. That's what honor is. Let me illustrate. I travel the world, and I get asked this a few times a year. Shane, wow. You must come from a long line of educated preachers. Uh, no. None of my great-grandparents could read. They were all illiterate. My great-grandfather was an illiterate person who made his living moonshining. If you don't know what that is, that's running illegal liquor across state lines. My great-grandfather was an illiterate moonshiner. He was also a member of a racist organization called the Ku Klux Klan. My great-grandfather was an illiterate, moonshining racist. And you might be thinking, hold on. How do you get from illiterate, moonshining racist to a guy traveling the world for 16 years connecting people to the love of Christ? How do you get that? Here's how. My parents stood on their own two feet, and they drew a line in the sand, and they said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. Our children will learn the presence of Jesus, and our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And within one generation of my parents drawing a line in the sand and changing the family tree, we went from illiterate, moonshining racists to what you see in front of you right now. And that is honor. What better way to honor your father than to perpetuate light and life into the next generation? People all over the world assume my great-grandfather was an educated preacher when in fact he was an illiterate moonshining racist. What better way to honor him than to live better now? So here's the thing. I'm so sorry for what happened to you, but with all the love in my heart, I can tell you the only hope for your life is to honor your father and mother. What do I mean by that? I mean take an audit. Here are the things that need to die with them. And here are the things that need to be perpetuate. Perpetuate light and life. Eradicate death and darkness. That is honor. That is honor. And here's the thing, right? See, there's a way to preach this that says something like this. We're going to do an altar call now and if you need your heart healed from your past and your previous generations, why don't you just come on up here? We're going to pray for you. There's a way we could do that, right? There's a way we could talk about it like that. Like, oh, oh, if they could just get healed, they could behave better. And we've said that about people. Like you've seen somebody acting like a lunatic and you go, oh, that poor person, if they could just get healing in their heart, then they, they would act better. Maybe. But here's the thing. 
And there's a little bit of validity to that. But Ezekiel takes the exact opposite position. Ezekiel says, God is not interested in healing your heart. And that's good. Because some things you just can't be healed from. Some abuse is so bad. You want to be healed from that? Really? No. Some divorces are so betraying. I just want my heart to be healed. What? From that? No. What? Come on. Heart healed from that? I don't think so. And that's the beauty of Ezekiel's observation. Ezekiel says, God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand new one. Why would you go around with a patched up healed heart when there's a heart transplant waiting for you? And here's what he says. Don't wait for a healed heart to change your behavior. By faith, choose to rid yourself of death and choose to embrace life. And a heart transplant is wrapped up in the middle of it. Now, what I'm going to do here in a second is I'm going to step off the stage. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to step off the stage. And I'm going to let your ministry teams minister to people. As a guest, I have to make a practice of that just simply because I'm in different churches every night. And I have to let them minister like they do. I've gotten in trouble around some of that before. And where I thought I was in a Pentecostal place and I wasn't in a Pentecostal place and I did a Pentecostal thing and I don't know. Anyway, so, and it was my bad. I forgot where I was, but here's the thing, right? And your pastor's just better at praying for people than me. So here's the thing, right? I'm going to pray for you, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask this question inside. Is there anything that I'm doing in my life simply because my family did it and, and I need to change I need to be the hero for my family tree. I don't want to leave it to my children. Here's the thing. You don't wait for your heart to be healed for this to happen. You, by faith, embrace God's way of living. And a new heart and a new spirit is found in that. So let's just take a second and cancel the white noise of the week. <clears throat> and pray a simple prayer underneath your breath. Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Would you reveal to me? my family habits, the things I've allowed that are really just what I was taught. Where do we need to shift it? Is there any place I'm on the road to death, darkness, and decrease? Where do I need to turn around? And Lord, I pray for this whole room that this place would be a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. And I pray that you would give us the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. May we act tonight to be the hero of our family tree. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to respond to Jesus for the first time. Your act is, I'm going to trust Jesus' version of my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. I trust that Jesus' version of my life would be better than the one I've written on my own, and I'd like to trust that tonight. Maybe that's your move. Maybe, maybe your move is, is, to, is to do something outside of the norm for your family tree. Lord, would you give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Amen. Would you look this way? 
Thank you so much for me to be a part of your life. I hope you really enjoyed that tonight. Um, I hope Jesus got bigger. I hope the cross worked better. I hope the resurrection central. I hope scriptures got bigger, not smaller for you. And I hope that you're inspired to act. Be people who change your family tree. Bring a guest. Bring a, bring a friend tomorrow night. I promise you I've got something that will change your life. If you come tomorrow night and it doesn't change your life, there's so much I believe in it. I will personally, out of my own pocket, I'll refund whatever they charge you to come. Okay? So whatever that is, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Thank you so much for being part of your life tonight. May you know that we are not just called to be people going to heaven when we die, but heaven is available here, now, today. I set before you today life and death, blessings and curses, light and dark. Choose life that you might live. Choose light instead of the darkness. And may it never, ever come out of anybody's mouth ever again that it's someone else's fault for why you are the way you are. May it never be said, it's my father that ate sour grapes and so my teeth are set on edge. Live more profoundly than that. Until I see you tomorrow night, grace and peace, everybody. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.